invite you to open your Bible with me tonight to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at a variety of various texts tonight, and so I really encourage you to keep your Bible open so that you can um, follow along with me, uh, particularly later on in the message, we'll be looking at various texts, and so um, keep your Bible handy. Uh, if you're trying to get online, their network may be down, so if you're trying to get wireless and that's not working for you, that would be why that is. Uh, hopefully you have someone close with a real Bible that you, could, uh, that you can use. Isaiah chapter 6, you know the story well, but let's just give our attention again uh, to God's word as we consider tonight the holiness of God. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we need your Holy Spirit tonight now to help us understand these words and to see the glory of our God. And so I pray that your spirit would focus our minds and direct our hearts. And Lord, that we would truly commune with you through your word as you speak to us, as you teach and instruct us, as you lead us in paths of life. Make the book live to us tonight, Lord. Make the book live in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking tonight at the word holy. Have you ever used a word without really knowing what that word meant or you came across a word? I, uh, I have a very vivid memory uh, from when, when I was young, probably around 10. Um, I was just starting to really enjoy reading. I would moved beyond the, uh, the Dick and Jane books. was happy about that. I, I thought they lacked character development and, and plot. And um, so I was, I was on to bigger things, and I was reading a book. And I remember I was reading in the car, and, and I came across a word that I did not understand. It had shown up several times in the book, and I was sounding it out like my teacher had told me, but it just I didn't recognize it. So I asked my mother, who was sitting in the front seat, I said, Mom, what does idiot mean? She said, what? I said, idiot. It says here, don't be an idiot. <laughs> and Mom started laughing, and um, she says, it's not idiot, it's idiot. <laughs> and she could have just well finished the sentence. Because in that moment, I immediately gained not simply an intellectual grasp of the word, but I experienced its meaning in a deeply personal and painful way. 
I can say now with full integrity, I know what that word means. Well, let's try another word. Holiness. What does holiness mean? Uh, Because it's a word that we commonly use, and yet it's a word that's difficult to grasp intellectually, and it's it's difficult to experience personally. But, But you see, the word holy ought to do something to you. It ought to stir you. It should move you, particularly in relationship to God. It's just that kind of a word. But how, uh, how is that going to happen? We need to understand what it means, and that's a hard thing for us. Uh, Rick Phillips, um, in one of his books, says, Holiness is the most difficult of God's attributes to define because in its essence, it refers to the way that God is other, not like us. It's much more simple to point to what holiness is not than to pinpoint what it is. David Needham, in a book entitled Close to His Majesty, asks this, what's the first idea that comes to your mind when you hear the word holy? Most of my life, I've thought of the word holy as a cold word, absolute, unbending, remote, pure light, cold light, impossibly distant, utterly unmoved by life down here. Well, that's partly true, but it's just partly true. It has to mean more than that. It has to have positive content. We can't just describe it according to what it isn't. So tonight, as we look at Isaiah and other texts, hopefully we can just gain an understanding, not just intellectually, but experientially, of what this word is about. The definition, uh, God is holy. Of that there's no doubt. It's the overwhelming emphasis of the text. It is the specific point of the seraphim's praise, and it's the immediate cause of the prophet's panic. This is a text about the holiness of God. But God is not just holy. In this text, we see that God is thrice holy. And if you know your Hebrew, uh, this is the Hebrew way of of stating superlatives. You'd repeat the word. Uh, R.C. Sproul makes the point that if you want to uh, describe a pit, you just say pit. If, If it's a big pit, you say it's a pit pit. And if it is the ultimate Uh, the pit, the pit beyond which there is no greater pit than you say the pit, pit, pit. Thrice pit. And what we have here is holy, 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 a threefold superlative. There's no other example of this anywhere in the Bible. Only the holiness of God is described uh, in this way. That does not mean that God is not infinite in all of his attributes. Obviously he is. He's infinite in his love and mercy and truth and grace. All, but, but God wants us to know that when it comes to his holiness, he is not simply infinitely holy. He's, he's holy, holy, holy. But what does that mean? Well, the word, if you, as you know, maybe uh, the word itself means separate or set apart. If you think uh, maybe... Uh, if you have dishes, when I, was a, when I was a boy, my mom had the everyday dishes, and then there were the fine dishes. Uh, there was tableware that was reserved for special occasions and special guests. It was kept in a, in a special place. And it was just understood that you, didn't, you did not bring those plates and, and cups and saucers out for just normal occasions. They were reserved. They were set apart. They were, that's holiness. Something set apart, devoted to a specific time or place or occasion. God then is infinitely set apart to himself. 
And the, the term, <coughs> excuse me, the, the idea of the holiness of God refers to God uh, in his being and his character. So it, it, there's a metaphysical aspect to it and a character aspect to it. Um, it it's to what he is and his character, what he's like. When it, when it speaks of God in his being, the best word to use is transcendence. And you see that immediately in the text. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. You'll find that same thought expressed other places. For example, Isaiah 57, 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And so when we think of holy, we should think exalted, transcendent, high. R.C. Sproul says, holiness refers to the sense that God is beyond us and above us. A transcendence describes God in, in his consuming majesty, his exalted loftiness. It points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. He is an infinite cut above everything else. You'll find that again in Scripture, Psalm 97, verse 9. You, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. He's in a sphere all to himself. In fact, that became one of the names of God, the name the Most High. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He is God most high. And so transcendence then speaks to the uniqueness of God, the, the unparalleled exclusivity of God as the creating, ruling, reigning Lord, King over all the created universe. The glory of God is that He and He alone is exalted and reigns. And so Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? And one of the things that holiness means, and it's maybe particularly important for, um, for our culture today, where we have a real tendency, and we're not unique in this, but a tendency to sort of create God in our image. The God that we believe in is the God that we like to believe in. A God that we sort of formed so he's, he fits our way of thinking. He, he settles comfortably into our uh, priorities and our worldview. And, and holiness says, well, that's, that's not God. God is not like us. Hosea eleven nine. I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst. One of the sins of Israel, God says, I think it's in, uh, in Psalm 55, uh, or 50, I can't remember, but you thought that I was altogether like you. It's one of the great crimes against God to make him in our likeness, to make him in our image. He's, he's holy, he's thrice holy. He's, he's fundamentally, essentially not like us. He's God. He's God in his transcendence. The second aspect of God's holiness is is his character, and, and now we, need, we talk about ethical purity, and th this is probably the most common way we use the term. When, we, when you talk about someone being holy, you, you're generally describing someone who is ethically, um, ethically pure, a, a very moral person. And so when we speak of God's holiness, we think of God being completely without sin, absolutely perfect, pure, 
God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. But I think that God's ethical purity involves more than just perfect morality. To say that God is holy in his ethical character means more than simply to say that he is perfectly good or without sin. I came across this in Sinclair Ferguson's recent book, Devoted to God, which I've just started, but it looks like it's going to be fantastic. But Ferguson, in that book, Devoted to God, points out that God is not merely separated from sin, but he is separated to something. That his holiness is not just the absence of moral imperfection, nor merely the presence of moral exactness. It is that, but it's, but, but it's more than that. And, and Ferguson says it's the blinding, pure devotion of God to the greatest of all goods, his triune self. So holiness, you see, isn't just, I don't do that, I don't do that. Holiness is, is in its essence, a, a wholehearted, white-hot passion for something. I do this. Uh, Ferguson writes this. What do we mean when we say Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit? We mean the attribute in the Trinity that describes the absolute, permanent, pure, irreversible, and fully expressed devotion of each of these three persons to the other two. Holiness is the intensity of the love that flows within the very being of God among and between each of the three persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the sheer intensity of that devotion that causes the seraphim to veil their faces. Ferguson illustrates that point by referencing the experience of being a pastor uh, conducting a wedding. It's something I was obviously able to relate to. Uh, because when you're, when you're doing a wedding, obviously the pastor has the best seat in the house, better than any of the witnesses. They're usually lined up behind each other, and the guy's three row back. He can see nothing at all. But um, I've got the best seat in the house. I can see every expression in their face. I can see the little glistening tear before it ever spills down the cheek. So um, I, I can watch this couple as they're sharing their vows, looking into each other's eyes. It's a, it's a precious, beautiful thing. But Ferguson says there's a, there is a moment in the uh, ceremony when, as pastors, we sense we can't look. And, and it's, I think it's absolutely true. So he says the moment comes when you say uh, to the, um, the eager young groom, uh, you may now kiss your bride. And uh, with a big smile on his face, uh, he proceeds to do that. If you're sitting out there, uh, so I usually step back a little bit, uh, and I'm looking at the congregation, and, and everybody's, everybody's looking, smiling, generally smiling, and sometimes applauding. But Ferguson says that, and, and this is absolutely true, that the minister feels an unbidden but irresistible conviction that we should look down or look away. Why? Because we're too close. That there's... It's okay to look from a distance, but, but when you're standing a foot away, there is something about that moment being shared by that couple that has holiness about it. And, you know, just imagine if, if I would uh, kind of get up there and, uh, 
It would be awkward. <laughs> it would be profane. I'm violating something. It's not for that. There's a holiness, you see, to that moment that requires distance, to come too close and to look, to gaze, to gawk. It, it, it would just be profane. And, and Ferguson says that's the experience of the seraphim. Why do they veil their faces? Why do they cover their eyes? It's not because they're, they're sinful. We can understand why Isaiah is terrified. He's a sinful man. The seraphim are without sin. So why must they veil their face? And, and Ferguson says it's because the holiness of, of the Lord is simply too much. It's too intense. God is locking eyes with God. Uh, the, the holy devotion and the joy of God, delighting in his own triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is so exquisite, so white hot in its purity, in its intimacy, that to stare would be profane. He's holy. He's holy. Now, I went to look in my systematic theology books to see if I could find some place where um, this connection is, where anybody else pick, picking up this connection between holiness and love. I didn't find, I don't have a lot of systematic theology books, um, but, but I didn't, I, 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 the ones I looked at, I didn't uh, frame and Raymond and um, whatever ones I looked at. However, I think he's still right. I think he's right because, uh, because of the nature, two things. What we know about the nature of God and what we know about the nature of ethical uh, purity. We know, on the one hand, that God is love. John says that in, in his letter. God is love. In other words, God doesn't just perform the act of love. He doesn't just experience love. He exists in the state of love, he is love. It is not something outside of himself that he experiences. It flows from himself. He defines the term. It's somehow God is love. So there's, there's this very close association with, with love and, and the metaphysical reality of God. So that we could easily think that love and holiness are, are nearly one and the same thing. Which is what Ferguson says. But I think the stronger argument is what we know about ethical purity. We know that ethical purity for us, for people, it's not a matter of keeping the external legal requirements of the law. If that were true, the Pharisees would have been the most holy people around. And they thought, actually, that they were. But they weren't. They were lawbreakers. They were evildoers. Why? But because... We know that the essence of the law is not external and it's not legal. The essence of the law, we read it this morning from the Shorter Catechism, the essence of the law is what? It's love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And that all matters, you see. It's not, it's not just a mild affection, but wholehearted, unreserved devotion and delight. That's what ethical purity is. Holiness is love. A love for God, a love for our neighbor. It is a white-hot affection of a, of a heart that, that longs for God, delights in God, desires the ways of God. So, so David will say in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. He loves it. That's holiness. That's why Jesus says 
In John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, I think Ferguson is right. However, if God's holiness is so closely connected with God's love, with love, then why is Isaiah terrified? You would think it would be this warm, fuzzy uh, experience. Well, that's because we sentimentalize love until it's nearly a meaningless word. There are two fours in the text. If you have your Bible still, Isaiah chapter 6. There are two four, F-O-R, in verse 5. Two reasons relating, I believe, to these two aspects of God's holiness, transcendence and ethical purity. Verse 5, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That is Isaiah responding to the ethical purity of God. The second then, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's experienced transcendence, ultimate, infinite transcendence. And, and, and it, it, it's like the, the, the fabric of his being is sort of unraveling. He's undone. The, the, the glory of God, the reality of God is so overwhelming that his, his, his person can't handle it. He's in the presence of too much person in the being of God. I, I'm, I'm in front of the king, the Lord of hosts, the hosts of heaven. And then he's terrified by the ethical purity of God. But, but, but remember, it's the holy ethical purity of God. He's in the presence of God's passion for his glory, his passion for his name, his devotion to his Trinitarian fellowship. And you see, it's precisely that that is the death knell for all that is evil. God does not vow to stamp out evil because he's the moral policeman. Because he just doesn't like it. He must stamp out evil because, you see, his, he cannot abide any rivals to his glory and his name and the white-hot passion that he has for the, the, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit cannot abide with sin, cannot abide with anything that is contrary to that love. And so, you see, the, the burning fire of God's inner Trinitarian holiness, love, fellowship, it, it, it burns and consumes what is evil. And see, this is the great dilemma of, of mankind. This is, this is our dilemma. How can we have fellowship with that kind of a God? How could we have fellowship with a God who is that transcendent, that high, that lifted up, most high, dwelling in his glory, seated on his high and holy throne? We are of the earth earthy. We're made of dirt. And when we die, we return to dirt. We're created, and we're here for a moment. We're a wisp of smoke. How could we possibly exist in the presence of ultimate glorious being, the King of kings and Lord of lords? And then God exists in the splendor of his holy, holy, holy love. The passion of his devotion will not allow any other gods. The purity of his affections will not abide with any unclean thing. And yet, with Isaiah, we have to recognize we, we have unclean lips, and we live with people with unclean lips. There's uncleanness all around us and within us. Out of our unclean hearts, our mouth speaks unclean words. Notice the, the, the nature of unclean, unfit, stained. 
And so how could we, being what we are, ever enter into the holy, devoted fellowship of the triune God? How do we ever get into, into, into that community of holiness? You see, and that's what it means to be lost. It means that there's ultimate being, ultimate reality, ultimate love, infinite, infinite glory, and we are on the outside with no way in on our own. But that's where we see, secondly, the holy purpose of God. Because God responds beautifully to Isaiah's cry. One of the seraphim, verse 6, flew to me, and having in his hand a, a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. You see, the, the, the glory of, of God is that he was not willing to turn his back on the lost children of Adam and Eve. He was not willing to turn his back on his creation or those made in his image. And so in love, out of the overflow of his holy, thrice holy love, he determined to rescue sinners. And to do that by way of purification, by way of atonement, the seraphim acting as a servant of God takes a coal. Notice where it comes from. It comes from the altar. Which altar? The altar in the courtyard. The, the, the altar where sacrifices are made, where unblemished lambs are slaughtered and then offered up as a propitiating sacrifice. This, this is the altar where atoning blood has been poured and, and then splashed up against the altar. There's cleansing power in that sacrifice. And the coal taken from that sacrifice and and. and, and applied to Isaiah's lips, the seraphim assures him is sufficient to wash away his sin. It's sufficient to, to cover his guilt, to atone for his guilt. It has the power to make him pure. In other words, it's able to make him holy. He's not consumed. He's allowed to live. He's in fellowship with God. And he's clean. And that's, friends, God's gospel passion, to purify for himself a people, to make sinners holy, spotless, blameless in his sight. And to that end, he sends his holy one. This text is a wonderful insight into the person of Jesus. If you have your Bible, so I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 41 and then Isaiah 47. Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 47. If I asked you who was it that Isaiah saw seated on the throne, I think most of us would assume that he saw God the Father. I believe the Bible is clear that he saw Christ the Son in his pre-incarnate state. And I get that from Isaiah 41. If you look at verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. You find the same thought in Isaiah 47, verse 4. A few pages over. Isaiah 47. Forty-seven, verse 4. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. The one that Isaiah saw is is Christ himself, the Holy One of Israel. He is the Redeemer. We know him by the name Jesus. And this Jesus has come 
to redeem, buy back, purchase for himself a people. He is the holy high priest who has offered up the sufficient sacrifice so that sinners can be made holy. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Because in Hebrews chapter 7, speaking of Christ as high priest, the writer points to both aspects of holiness, both transcendence and ethical purity. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7 verse 26. I'll just start at 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, ethical purity, separated from sinners, that's the word holy, that's the idea, and exalted above the heavens. You see, you got both aspects there. Christ being both ethically pure and transcendent, exalted. And we know from other passages of Scripture that that's exactly what's happened to Jesus. If you go to Romans, Revelation chapter 4, you'll find, in a sense, a reenactment of Isaiah chapter 6. Revelation chapter 4. Now, the uh, Apostle John on the island of Patmos, he has a vision of the, of the same throne room that Isaiah saw. I, Revelation chapter 4. Verse 1, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. If you just slide down to chapter 8, you'll see the same sort of language. Uh, let's pick it up, actually. Uh, verse 6, before the throne, there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an angel in flight, seraphim, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's the same song. It's the same throne. It's the same Lord and King. Jesus reigns transcendent in his holiness and full of love. So what this does is helps us to realize the glory of Jesus as transcendent king, the glory of, of Jesus as he comes, the expression of God's love for sinners. And this Jesus, then this, this uh, the concept of holiness also reminds us who we are. This morning we read from Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 7, for our call to, for our, um, the Lord's greeting. And it, it says this, if you remember, to all those who are loved by God and called to be saints. In other words, loved by God and called to be holy. And that's a theme you'll find throughout the New Testament. That we, if you're a Christian, you've been called by God to be holy. Well, what does that mean? It means two things. It means you are called to be exalted and you are called to be welcomed into the thrice, the, the, the holy love fellowship of God himself. 
And so Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 about our exaltation, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. To be a Christian, to be made holy, is to be exalted. That that is your destiny as a Christian. That, and and, and in, in principle, it's already true of you. You reign already because you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and Christ reigns. And one day, we are going to go and reign with him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Called by God to be holy. But it also means that God is calling you into the holy love fellowship of the Trinity, that Jesus Christ came so that you see you are allowed, you are able, you are made fit to enter into the fellowship of the transcendent thrice holy God. If you just turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he just says the most amazing things. John 17, look at verse 24. This is the son speaking to his father, whom he loves. He says, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's the that's the the holy love fellowship of the Trinity. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, the amazing truth is that what the sinless seraphim are not able to do, to, to enter into the fellowship of God, into that circle of holy love, what they are not able to do, one day we will. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. One day we will, we will enter into that that holy communion of love. And that's what heaven will be. That, that, this is the essence of salvation. There's nothing above this. There's nothing beyond this. Jesus, as he's about to go to the cross, makes this his prayer. Father, I want them, I want to, I want them to see my glory, the glory that you gave me before the foundation of the world because you loved me. I want, I want, I want them to be with me and with us. That's what Christ came to accomplish. I just want you to to think about how that changes the troubles that you're going to have this week. Just put that into perspective. That nothing can keep you if you belong to Jesus Christ from that. You've been called to be holy. This is what Christ came to accomplish. And all we need to do, see, is receive this gospel. We just need to believe it to accept it, to come under its terms, to love, to, to accept the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ and to trust in him. C.S. Lewis in his class of work, The Silver Chair, has this great story, this, this illustration, because you see, it's the holiness of God that is exactly what sinners fear, just like Isaiah feared. 
And it's the holiness of God that, that makes us sense we ought to run, we ought to hide. And yet, because it's a thrice holy love, it's, it's, it's what we need to run to. It's, it's the only thing that can save us. And so C.S. Lewis in the, in the story has this the, a part of the story where he represents Christ, of course, as this, this majestic lion, this fearful lion. And, and in the story, Jill is wandering through the, the woods. She's, she's famished with thirst out in the forest. And uh, she hears a bubbling stream. And so she goes because she needs the water. But when she, when she comes near, there's, there's the lion resting there on the bank in all of his majesty, in all of his, his glory. And, and she's frightened. And she starts to back away, but the lion, the lion says to her, come forward, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And, and she's very thirsty, she's, she's unbelievably thirsty, but, but the lion is, is just too frightening. And she says, I, I daren't come and drink. And the lion answers, then you will die of thirst. And she says, oh, oh dear, I, well, I, I suppose I must go and look then for another stream. And to her shock, the lion says, there is no other stream. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. There's no other way than this way. No other truth than this truth. No other life than the life that which is found in this holy God through this holy Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you are in sin and unconverted, and maybe thinking that you need to clean things up first before you can come, don't even think of it because, because you'll never get clean enough. And God will never accept whatever efforts you've made as good enough. The only thing that can save you is, this, is the sacrifice of the Son. And, and so you must approach the God that you fear, and, and you fear rightly, He's holy, but you must come to Him believing that in Jesus Christ, that God has made a way for you, the sinner, to come and be saved. And friend, there's, there's no other stream. There's no other way. It's come to Jesus or die. And I, I just want to ask you tonight, what is it with you? Are you willing to come to this stream and, and truly come in faith, come in, in, in confession, repentance, come and drink and live? Or will you walk away? And if you're here tonight as a believer, but your, your, your soul is troubled with sin and the holiness of God is, is frightening to you. Don't let his holiness keep you away. It's, it's a holy love, friend, that is passionate for your healing. He has called you to be holy. It's a holy love that's provided all that's required for you. A righteousness not your own freely given and received by faith alone. And the invitation is for you. Then, then come again. I know it's the 10,000th time. Come again. Your sin is atoned. Your guilt is covered. Come drink and live and watch God make you holy. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, holiness is a hard concept for us. We're used to sin. We understand depravity. We, we know moral stain. We know baseness, humiliation, embarrassment, shame. But Lord, holiness is another language. 
It's another reality. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's pure. It's precious. And in our heart, Lord, there's nothing we want more than to be caught up in it. Lord, some of us maybe have um, quenched that thirst by seeking to satisfy it with other things, career, reputation, pleasure, entertainment. But those are all dead and dry streams. There's no life there. And others have tried hard to clean up our act to make things better. But we just fail again and again. God, I thank you. Oh, holy God, I thank you that you've given us Jesus Christ and that your purpose for us is greater than we can ask or imagine. No eye has seen, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. But Lord, help us to believe it, that what you give in Jesus Christ is more precious, more beautiful, more astonishing, more amazing and glorious, more pure than anything we've ever known. And that it is worth losing everything in this life to have this one thing. So God, I pray that we would be hungry for holiness. That we would, we would be famished for glory. And that we would, Lord, then come to this Jesus in all of his beauty, all of his holiness, this wonderful high priest, and believe in him, and trust in him, and follow him. And taste all the goodness and the glory and the love of God in him. Father, we want this to be real. So that when we hear the word holiness, it's not just a theological concept or religious phrase. But Lord, we're tasting it. We're seeing it. And we're hungry for it in all of its fullness. Lord, grant that gift to us. And we'll thank you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.